From the World Economic Forum, I'm Beatrice Di Caro, and this is the Book Club Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by award-winning author Gaia Vince to discuss her latest book, Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval, particularly relevant now as we approach COP27, the latest annual climate change conference. Gaia was the first woman to win the Royal Society Prize for Science Books in 2015, with her debut, Adventures in the Anthropocene, for which she traveled the world, meeting those living on the front lines of the climate crisis. In Nomad Century, she looks at climate migration, where people are forced from their home by rising sea levels or extreme weather such as floods and droughts, or by long-term changes to their climate which means they can no longer live and prosper on the land they once called home. Official estimates of how many climate migrants there may be in the coming decades range widely. A third of people questioned in an Ipsos survey conducted for the World Economic Forum expect they will be displaced in the next 25 years due to climate change. In her book, Gaia Vince, a former editor at Nature and the New Scientist, looks at the possibility we could see as many as 1 billion environmental refugees in the next 30 years, and imagines how the world would cope. My colleague Kate Whiting interviewed Gaia and started by asking her what made her want to write the book. It is a book that I want to get out widely and, and have raised discussions about it. I have been fomenting the idea for some time, really, because I, I went on a journey of two and a half years around mainly the global south, looking at impacts of climate change as felt by people on the front line. Not just people there, also uh, scientists and policymakers, presidents, all sorts of people who are already affected by the impacts. That was some years ago that I started that journey and I could see quite a lot of evidence of people already moving. And the conversation in the Western world, where I come from, in London and uh, and the capitals of Europe and New York and, and so on, were very much about the idea of climate change being something in the future or something that we could prevent through through mitigation. And there wasn't much conversation at all on, on adaptation. Whereas what I'd seen going around the world was people already affected and already coming up with their own adaptations. And there was absolutely zero conversation. This has now moved on. Um, people now are talking about adaptation. We're all witnessing the effects of extreme weather. We've just had this horrendous summer that has affected everywhere from India and Pakistan to the US to Europe to China, everywhere. So we're now getting the conversation a little bit about adaptation. But still, nobody is talking about the large places around the world and with huge populations that simply will not be able to adapt as the conditions become more extreme over the coming decades. There is no plan in place to manage that, and these people will have to move. Migration is already now inevitable. The degree is not inevitable. We can still change you know, who has to migrate and in what numbers. But nevertheless, we need to start talking about this as an honest and realistic situation so that we can put in place some plans to manage it. You mentioned Pakistan, and I think it's quite timely we're having this conversation now when the news today is that I think it's something like 30, 
33 million people have been displaced by the flooding there. So, you know, this is very much happening now. And as you say, we've seen images of drought and wildfires this summer, which I think has has brought it home to people that actually this is something that we have to, the climate crisis is happening, we have to act now. But also, it's still quite hard to imagine the scale of it. And there are a few sort of statistics in the book that you cite, which actually gives a sort of indication of that. What for you are the sort of key stats, if you like, to really bring this to life, how how sort of impactful it's going to be? I, I do put a lot of statistics in the book and it can be a bit overwhelming. They are, it is, what we are facing is, it, it is pretty catastrophic. Um, I was speaking to scientists only last week who were saying that the global temperature has now risen 1.35 degrees above the pre-industrial temperature and it's likely we will exceed 1.5 degrees within the next five or six years. You know, if you think about the last COP last year in Glasgow, the emphasis was very much on keeping 1.5 alive, keeping below 1.5 by the end of the century. Well, you know, the reason for that is that once we exceed 1.5 degrees, we risk tipping points um, in the earth system that really threaten people immediately, but also um, intergenerationally. These are tipping points in the earth system where we put a normal stable state that we've built our entire civilizations under into a completely different state, which humanity has never experienced before. So, you know, everything from the coral reefs to um, the Amazon to the ocean circulation that that keeps the Gulf Stream working, there are tipping points which if we go over, if the Greenland glaciers melt, we we are entering a whole different world. And I don't think people have really woken up to how soon that could happen and how catastrophic it could be. And, you know, this book, Nomad Century, really is my attempt to look pragmatically at what this means and what we can do, because we do still have choices. You know, the future is still unwritten. We still have decades to to live through this, this appalling scary situation. But but soon we won't have those choices. We will just simply be reacting as we are now to every new catastrophe. And once you're reacting, it's too late to change it. Right now, we do have choices. And I, I really want to make that clear. Like we are not doomed. This is there are solutions we can take which will which will help as many people as possible survive that. And I think we you know it's an abdication of responsibility to not discuss them, which is what's happening at the moment. Yeah. Your chapter in the book that looks at what you call the four horsemen of the Anthropocene are, you know, drought, heat, fire and floods, as we've seen all of those things this summer. And I suppose they are the main drivers of migration. And you talk about, I think there'll be 1.5 billion environmental refugees in the next 30 years. So there's obviously that impact on humanity, but there's also a huge economic impact, isn't there? And I suppose because we're, you know, talking to the World Economic Forum, it's important to know that, you know, this is going to have a huge economic impact on the world as well, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's already having a huge economic impact. People are not completely honest about the effects of climate change on the economies. But I mean, 
if you just look, for example, at China, which has been experiencing extreme heat and drought over the past few months, they've had to stop agricultural production, which has had huge effects on the global food prices, you know, exacerbated by the Ukrainian situation, and actually climate effects across the world, which have um, hit agriculture. They also had to stop other forms of production besides agriculture, because um, power stations were having outages, because they just didn't have the power supply. In certain industries, they didn't have the water to work. Certain industries, they didn't have the power to work. It was too hot to work in other places. I mean, heat and drought have huge impacts on the economy. And, you know, the way the world is networked, as you well know, we can't afford for China's economy to tank. We, we can't afford it. We're all networked. And this doesn't just become a small problem in China. It becomes a global problem, as we've seen throughout the pandemic. And it's in all of our interests to come up with solutions because our, all our interests are aligned on this. We all want productivity. We're not competing in that way. You know, if China's economy is going well, then the rest of the world also has a chance. So it's in all our interests to try and solve this problem. So for you, the main crux of the book is obviously the migration um, that will need to happen. We need to rehome people in a sort of orderly manner. What is that case that you make for migration? So it is inevitable. People are already moving. But what's happening is they're not necessarily moving to safety. They're moving from rural areas to cities. That is happening because rural livelihoods are becoming impossible under these conditions. And because villages are being washed away and it's rural areas are becoming unlivable, whereas cities generally have more of the infrastructure. They have the institutions to help people. But what happens is a lot of people are arriving in slums accommodation, which is the most vulnerable parts of cities. And they are then trapped there because they've quite often used their resources to move to cities and can't move on. So I'm talking about facilitating migration because a lot of people can't move to safety. They don't have the finances. They can't cross borders because of our border limitations. And it's actually quite difficult to migrate even when you've got all the resources to hand. If you've ever tried moving house, you'll know. What we're talking about is large areas of the a sort of tropical band and areas of coastland, small island states, places um, around big rivers becoming increasingly unlivable for large numbers of the population. Not everybody living there will have to move, but they can't sustain these um, massive populations that they currently have. So we're talking about tens of millions, possibly hundreds of millions to billions over the coming decades having to move. Now, we can either leave that situation as we're doing at the moment and put up totally inadequate barriers and uh, turn it into a horrific conflict zone, as we have for very small trickles, actually, of migration compared to what we're expecting. Or we can put plans in place to actually facilitate and manage this migration so that it helps produce economically vibrant, growing cities in safer places. I mean, everywhere around the planet is going to have to adapt to the new conditions of the Anthropocene, to this changed world that we're all living in. But some places will be better able to adapt. They have the resources, they're less affected by climate change, they have stronger institutions, they're just more resilient. And these places will be receivers of large numbers of people. 
and it needs to be managed so that people moving and, and they will largely be moving for work. They, you know, migration is not a security issue. It has been completely framed um, as a security issue. It's it's really a labour issue. And if you think all of the trade facilitation that we have in place to get commodities and resources moving swiftly around the world, you know, in order to boost economies everywhere. Well, human labor is the biggest resource we have. It is the biggest part of our economy. And what we've been doing is really hampering that, helping people move to jobs and making sure that people are properly included. So they don't live in segregated cities where they are not included in um, society and in the formal economy as you know, we have examples where that has tragically happened and led to all kinds of difficult outcomes. If we can facilitate that migration, we can move people to safety, we can help feed people in different ways, create new infrastructure that is sustainable, is resilient, and build hopeful cities with thriving economies. I mean, the whole of the Northern Hemisphere basically is suffering a demographic crisis. And that is going to come to hit home very soon, actually, because, you know, we're simply not having enough babies to support the aging uh, population. We need the stimulus of new workforce. And we will only achieve that through immigration. Leaders know that whatever they publicly say in anti-immigration rhetoric, they absolutely know that their economies depend really heavily on immigration. This is a way, if it's managed well, that uh, we can meet those two objectives. I think you also mentioned somebody had said that if borders were removed completely, GDP would increase by $90 trillion. Um, so actually migration brings with it economic benefits to countries as well. Yeah, there's been, there have been quite a few different calculations, but they are phenomenal. If you would completely remove borders because people move generally to where the jobs are. And if the jobs are there, it's because there are vacancies. They need people to fill them. So, you know, people organize themselves much better. They don't, they don't need the enormous numbers of uh, security barriers that prevent people from just creating their own networks and their own economies. Yeah, I think also in light of the war in Ukraine, where we've seen the UK where we are talking now has taken in refugees in the Homes for Ukraine programme, um, who are now finding jobs and, you know, adding to the economy. So we know that it can happen in an orderly manner. Um, I suppose it's really a question of how that happens and what needs to happen. And you mentioned in the book the role of the UN as part of that. Yeah, I mean, the, the UN, you know, is flawed. Um, I think we've, we've all seen um, the evidence for that. But nevertheless, you know, in the short time that we have to to really address this issue, it is the obvious and, you know, it is the only body that can carry out international global negotiations on this level. I mean, I think we'll probably start with regional agreements, like, for example, within the European Union, there is free movement of labour. I think that will probably expand and we'll get um, agreements across other regions and then these will tie up and we'll get those global agreements coming out of that. And various regions are already in process of forming their own free movement areas for labour. You know, this is something that needs to be managed properly and it will take investment. It absolutely will. But that investment will be more than repaid. You know, initially, you do have to put money in to ensure that when large numbers of people come, 
that the healthcare system, the social systems that are in place can actually respond to that. So people do have enough housing, they do have access to education and so on, and that native populations don't feel pushed out or that there is a conflict over resources. It also takes investment in the narrative in actually countering this very poisonous, hostile anti-immigration narrative with some facts about immigration, that they don't increase, immigrants don't increase crime, that they actually increase the productivity of an economy. They, they increase the number of jobs and generally wages when they move in. There's plenty of research to back that up now. And for politicians and policymakers to remain silent as these narratives go unchallenged has led to a really worrying situation, you know, where where nations rely entirely on immigrants um, for their cities to thrive. And yet people are confused about whether immigrants actually are a hostile threat to them or whether they should welcome them in. When you were writing your book, uh, which won the Royal Society Science Prize, I think you were the first woman to win that prize. So congratulations for that. Adventures in Anthropocene. As you say, you spent, um, was it two and a half years traveling around the globe? What kind of things did you see and people that you met who are actually struggling now with the impact of climate change? Well, I mean, everything. So I met people in small island states um, in the Indian Ocean, so in Kiribati and in, in Maldives, who uh, whose houses had been washed away, who's, you know, who would point to the sea, essentially, and say, oh, yes, that's where our school was. You know, it's it, there is a visible change. It's happening so fast that people can see from year to year huge change. The other end of the scale in, in the Andes, you know, so many villages that have been completely deserted because the rains just never came. They just never came. And they're completely dependent on glacial meltwater or rainwater. And the glaciers are all gone now. So it's, it's rain or nothing. You know, then I would find them in the slums of the cities. And when I'm talking about you know, it's easy for a lot of people to imagine that as things get hotter, well, you do need to adapt. You know, perhaps you buy air conditioning units, perhaps you, I don't know, you change the shape of the house a bit so that it's insulated or a bit cooler. You know, for, for the many millions, some, something like nine million slum dwellers in Mumbai alone who are living in basically concrete boxes with corrugated metal roofs, hard up against each other with little alleyways in between, they cannot adapt to the heat that is coming. They're already six to 10 degrees hotter in those slum houses than they are in like the, the proper city of Mumbai. And you know, while some swanky hotels and shopping malls have got air con, as soon as the heat gets to a certain level, all you can hear is generators pumping out because there are power outages immediately. And, you know, these generators are running on fossil fuels. And so the air is affected. You know, while Mumbai, which is it's also affected because it's on the edge of the ocean, it's also affected by um, floodwaters as well as extreme heat. You know, there will be a population in Mumbai. It's going to be a much smaller population. This enormous 20 million population is the majority are going to have to move over the coming decades and perhaps a large number by 2050 and that's that's the period of time that most mortgages are out 
that's the time since 1992. When we make decisions, we make financial decisions, big financial decisions over what house we're going to buy or what car we're going to buy, they are expected to last over that time period. You know, we really need to bear in mind that the world will be very different in 2050. Is that financial purchase you're making, is it a good investment or are you going to be stuck somewhere that you cannot sell you can't move from because, you know, it's it's too risky. It's it's in a fire risk zone. You know, we've seen wildfires spontaneously erupt even in, in the UK, let alone across um, Europe and the US. It's now it's now continual. We've had that in Australia for some time now, but in the UK, it's already happening. So we need to think about that fire, flood, heat. All of these things are really threatening where we live now and will be pushing people to move. I think that's a really good point that you make about it's going to affect everybody. Um, and then the book, you, you sort of say about houses in Florida, you know, really enormous mansions and they can't get insurance and things. And obviously then, you know, how it affects people in slums in Mumbai or Nairobi also. So I guess the question is, where will these people be living? You know, you, you do say in the book, there are certain areas um, and also what those houses will look like. There are initiatives that are happening, which will create lots of homes for people. So what does that look like? Well, we're going to be largely moving north. Um, we, we need to move to higher latitudes. And if you look at the globe, there isn't much land in lower la- in higher latitudes um, in the global south because of the shape of the continent. So we will be moving north. Some cities um, will be expanded, some existing cities. Churchill, Manitoba, for example, which is a small kind of polar bear outpost at the moment, but it's in a strategically important place. It's on the um, Hudson Bay, which will be um, increasingly experiencing ice-free summers. It's also linked by railways to the rest of the United States. So it's it's in quite a good zone. So places like that will be expanding. Places like Scotland, um, places in Scandinavia, Iceland, Greenland. Uh, we can already, if we look from space, we can already see visible greening of the Arctic. This part of the planet is um, heating up four times faster than anywhere else. Um, and we're going to, over the next couple of decades, we're going to see dramatic change to this whole kind of Arctic belt. Other places, we're going to need entirely new cities built by largely a migrant uh, workforce, uh, just as the United States was settled by immigrants, just as Australia was settled by immigrants. We're going to see that happening. And the kinds of uh, houses we built will have to be appropriate for the Anthropocene conditions. So they will need to be built out of sustainable materials. So we'll be moving away from very carbon intensive materials like concrete and cement and moving to a lot more things like uh, cross-laminated timber. The buildings will have to be very well insulated, much more passive, but also they will work harder for producing their own energy, recycling a lot of things like water and air systems uh, throughout them. They will be dense dense housing considering the number of people that we will that we will have to house. I mean if you consider the global population anyway is going from today's 8 billion up to 9 or 10 billion in the by the 2060s before it's likely coming down actually to t- today's number by the end of the century. And that fluctuation is actually 
it means we need some flexibility um, in our housing structures, in our cities, how we how we plan them. Studies show that housing that is dense and is mixed, so we so there's residential combined with utilitarian, combined with commercial, industrial, all sorts of purposes within the same sort of blocks, everything being walkable rather than zoned off. This is a residential area and then you have to drive to uh, the commercial district or the industrial. Having them all closely together makes the most sense in terms of society, social cohesion and um, inclusivity of, of the population, which is really what you want. And in terms of the density of the housing itself, architecturally, it looks like four to six stories is about right. So there's a lot of evidence to support dense housing that really are genuinely inclusive. And this does take investment from government in terms of finance, but also in terms of that really important community building, inclusive messaging. And one of the, I suppose, huge challenges we'll face alongside rehoming people is how to feed them. We're seeing, you know, huge amounts of food insecurity already because of droughts and lack of water. So how do we go about feeding that 9 billion population? Yes. I mean, this century is all change. It really is a huge, huge upheaval in every single aspect of our lives because um, we're very much living the lives of uh, Victorian or 20th century people where resources were uh, were plentiful, the climate was nice and reliable, and the population, global population was quite low. We've moved, we've left that zone already, and we're moving into much more dangerous territory where people will have to move, but also agriculture will have to move. A lot of places will not be agriculturally viable. There won't be the labour force to do that agriculture as well. I mean, already we're seeing drought everywhere and large agricultural yield losses. So agriculture is something that will have to be completely transformed. And the the biggest change will be we will be moving to almost completely plant-based diets. So that immediately cuts out the huge ecological destruction of livestock agriculture, because not only are forests and other wildlands converted to keep livestock, but also to produce the food that is then fed to livestock. It's an incredibly inefficient way of producing food for humans. And it will free up a large amount of land that can then be rewilded and restored. And that's really key because during this century, ideally, if we manage it well, if we plan it well, we will, at the same time as people are undergoing this upheaval, be restoring the planet's health, restoring the uh, destroyed and damaged ecosystems so that forests, parts of the Amazon are already emitting more carbon than they are withdrawing, which is terrifying. We rely on the Amazon to set weather patterns, but also to withdraw enormous amounts of carbon from the atmosphere. The restoration of ecosystems will continue. And hopefully by the end of the century, the planet will be healthy enough for people to return back to some of these unlivable places. We will get a return to the tropics. I think reading this as a mother, I know obviously the climate crisis will affect everybody. And you say in the book, as a mother yourself, you know, it has a different impact because you're thinking about the future of your children and what world they're going to live in. When you were researching it, did, did did it make you want to run for the hills, so to speak, or, you know, actually think about your future? What we are facing is horrendous. It is a huge, 
horrible crisis. And it terrifies me because, you know, this is the world that my children are going to have to, I mean, I'm going to live, I'm going to be around in 2050. They're going to be around at the end of the century in 2100. And you can either fall into despair and say, we're all doomed and there's nothing we can do, so then we won't do anything. Or we can be pragmatic and say, there is still quite a lot we can do. We do have choices and we need to make it. We need to manage this so that people have livable, productive, healthy cities to live in rather than absolute despair, war, not enough food, energy that that cuts out the whole time. I think that these choices, I think that managing migration, even on an unprecedented scale, even this very huge challenge that I'm talking about, living with people that didn't weren't born where you were born and didn't grow up where you grew up and forming a community, a society on our shared planet is a much better solution than enrolling in an army because we're fighting over what land there is. I would, I would much prefer that future for my children. It will take cooperation. And we saw that with the pandemic that we are able to move and work all together in a united way to solve a crisis. You end the book with a eight point manifesto, which is a kind of combination of statements of fact and actions that need to happen. How hopeful are you that we'll be able to accomplish all those things and, and turn this around? You know, we are an incredible species we completely rely on the fact that we cooperate. We're super cooperators. We cooperate beyond our family group, beyond just our small friendship. We cooperate internationally, globally with complete strangers to make this incredibly networked world. In fact, we're so efficient at that, that we've dominated the planet and we've pushed it into this terrible situation. We can push it out with our social skills. We also have incredible technological skills. We are able to deliberately change where water flows, how energy is produced, the temperature of the atmosphere. We can do all of those and we need to combine those, but in a democratic way. We need to come up with solutions to this problem, which are out there. They really are. And it is my hope that this is a it will be a century of upheaval, but it will be one in which we emerge as a fairer, more just, healthier society on a much more sustainable planet. And going forward, we we continue within those kind of ecological limits. That was author Gaia Vince speaking to Kate Whiting. Big thanks for joining us on the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast and best of all, leave us a review. Don't forget to join our book club on Facebook, which is coming up on 200,000 followers. And to discuss podcasts, please join the Forums Podcast Club, also on Facebook. Of course, please search out our sister podcasts, Radio Davos and Meet the Leader, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Book Club Podcast was presented by my colleague Kate Whiting and myself, Beatrice DiCato. Production was with Gareth Nolan and thanks to our podcast editor, Robin Pomeroy. We'll be back soon, but for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.